Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever I find you. This is Alan Averill. This is the first episode of the second season of Agitators Anonymous. Um, The intention was to have a bit of a break between the seasons. Quite what for? I don't know, seeing as there's nothing to do. So I thought, well, what else am I going to do? What else are we all going to do? Let's launch back into another season for what it's worth. So follow me on Instagram as Nemtiango underscore primordial. For some reason, I swapped those around. No idea why. Um, and Patreon is Alan Avery with two capital A's. So at the end of the last season, um, my video cast with Adi from Solstafir went down really well, almost unanimously positive. I think that an awful lot of people are having issues with mental health, feeling a lot of strain, a lot of pressure. And I got quite a lot of very encouraging messages from people who thought that um, not enough people were really speaking out about it. And especially, as Adi alluded to within the conversation, uh, it seems to not be a thing that musicians talk to, despite there being, um, despite there being medical surveys, I suppose, investigations, would that be the word, into musicians' mental health and our lifespan is probably about the same as a a male who lives in Glasgow. Did you know that? That the lifespan of males in Glasgow and Scotland has actually gone down. It's under 60, I think, 58, 59. Don't hang me if that detail is incorrect. But anyway, yes, 
mental health. It's been very pertinent, very important, and I think very prescient to try and discuss and unpick and try and comprehend and do our best to get through it. I mean, if you're somebody who's been hitting the bottle every day, um, I understand it. I mean, there's been days where it's been very hard to get out of bed, to find any purpose, to find any um, reason for trying to get up and face the day. Little great white reference there for you. Um, but we just can't spend the next few months wallowing in the bottom of the bottle like a little worm. We have to try and do what we can to preserve our mental health and for me the most important word throughout all of this has been purpose to try and find a purpose now whether this podcast is a purpose a means to an end remains to be seen but at least it presents some form of discipline um, where are we with gigs I got lots of questions about that from the podcast before where I discussed the Live Nation leak and also with Addy about the future of playing live. He, of course, was a ray of sunshine compared to my gloomy, squally, grey shower of a day, um, as is his want. And people, of course, really liked the fact that the pair of us had a lot of diametrically opposed points of view. But the truth is, I think that no one really knows. Again, it's like we're in a holding pattern but slowly running out of petrol, um, which is ironic seeing as the petrochemical states, I'm sure, are up in arms about the fact that we aren't flying. Well, someone's arms anyway. Um, so the point being, a friend of mine bought a ticket for a gig that is next month in Germany and there are some very strict criteria in it which are worth discussing and that is that the floor I suppose the dance floor the, the floor of which you would normally have a packed crowd in um, will be very strictly measured out defined with yellow tape uh, there'll be a sort of um, cycle track I guess runway kind of system to the toilet and the bar when you buy the ticket you have to very specifically declare who you're going to be sharing your squared space with a spouse or a significant other or whoever you might live with. And that is the people that can only stay in your square. The capacity for the venues are running at 15 to 20 percent. And it's all going to be very strict and above board. Now, of course, across Germany, for example, where this gig is taking place, there will be different regions who will try and implement different rules. But if that's going to be something of an industry standard, then we can say that, I mean, I've said it like 12 times in the last two or three months that rock and roll is dead. But the very simple fact is that small venues who only have a capacity of a few hundred can't survive on 40 people being distanced. And neither can the bands and there's no economy for touring. And to be quite frank with you, um, I don't really wish to take part in a Vegas style residency where people sit and eat and watch you play, which is what might happen. Um, you might get very famous or very, let's say, bigger bands who will play in venues where people will be just literally sitting eating at their tables. So, and it will be like a Vegas-style residency. 
which sounds horrific if you ask me. Um, but maybe we are all in the end of our careers anyway, like a fat Elvis sitting on the toilet in a Vegas hotel. Um, yeah, that is what is going to be happening for the next, I would don't know, maybe coming months or something. And as the vaccine or the talk of vaccine just seems to be further and further away from the front of the news, it begins to worry me that um, there is no, um, there has been no progress on cracking this genome phenotype or whatever you want to call it that is causing the virus and that is it just adapting to its new situation new scenario you know what am i talking about what do i know who knows what i know certainly not me anyway um but the point is that these squared squared off gigs where a band will play for uh, the requisite hour and a half i mean realistically a socially distanced gig is the end of um, the scene that we knew and if that scene you can't really just place it in the deep freeze for a year a year and a half and hope it comes out the other end um, intact because I don't think it will I think a lot of venues will disappear um, which runs me back neatly to the concept of gentrification in the first place a lot of small businesses will appear appear will disappear um, so that is where we are at with gigs and again we don't know. Primordial has been, still has gigs on the radar in September, October, November, but I imagine that they will, um, over the process of the next few months, disappear. I mean, don't hold me to that, but I would imagine that September and October is unlikely. But for the most part, the rest of us are just waiting to see what happens. And like I said, in this situation of socially distanced gigs, I think that comedy and theatre can return. I mean, I've been to plenty of comedy shows where everybody's just been sitting at tables anyway. You'd, you don't stand to watch comedy. You don't generally stand to watch theatre. So I think that those two areas can return. But as for live music, I think it's really in trouble. And it would seem to me, at least in relation to the Irish government and the stimulus packages that they're offering um, the museums and theatres of the state, very little very little attention has been paid to musicians. Um, I don't know of a single musician who's got a grant from the state. Um, so that is the situation we are at with gigs. And without a vaccine or some sort of biometric um, immunity, well, I haven't said the word biometric in a few episodes, not since 1972 or something. Um, without that, I... I'm very sure that we won't be allowed to gather in a field in the numbers that you are used to have been. So where does that leave us? It leaves us in a very complicated and confusing situation as it has been now for months. I can't really tell you more than that because there isn't any industry inside information. As I don't know about you, but the city where I live in coming out of this is a mess, really. We changed governments in the interim period between as the stages evolved, as this road map was laid out. And I think most of our institutions and at least the people in power in them have been shirking responsibility in explaining to people what they can and cannot do. I mean, maybe 
the truth is that this is not all some Machiavellian plot, as I alluded to before, but just a mess of disorganization and chaos. Um, so the city, to me, looks like it did in 1988, um, as in there's junkies and homeless people everywhere. Most businesses are still closed, boarded up. There's streets in the city that are 60, 70% boarded up. And the worry, of course, is the implication of the onset of gentrification. Um, I don't necessarily always like to use that word because I think that there is a romance in looking back on, for example, the Ireland of the 1970s, the 1980s, with this sort of twinkly-eyed, rose-tinted glasses, you know, that it was this hubbub of positive community spirit and that gentrification came in and ruined everything. Now, there are, of course, arguments to say that in some cases it did, but I remember areas of the city, Temple Bar, for example, that were literally just places where people went to buy heroin and just full of empty buildings. Now, you can't tell me that an Irish-run business in that area now is actually gentrification in the negative sense of the word. So what are we going to talk about this time? Um, I'm going to try and make the podcast a little bit more in-depth, a little bit more specific to certain things, a little bit more um, to try and focus my scattergun energy a little on a little bit of a tighter subject, so to say, to, to, to narrow the lens, because I have noticed that although people like to listen to the character of what's being said, that at times my rambling style can make um, matters a little bit confusing. Or maybe that's what people like about it. We'll see. I may say that and then do completely the opposite. But yes, the city looks like it did in 1987 or 1988 to me. And it's hard to know exactly how we pull out of this because I still feel that people are in a holding pattern um, they're still being paid by the state, so they still don't know about their state of unemployment. We don't know if we can travel abroad. We're being encouraged to holiday in Ireland, just like the 1980s when nobody could afford to go anywhere. Um, nobody is sure which air corridors are open. Of course, the backstop of Brexit and an open border with the UK in the north is, I think affecting some of the air corridor decisions. Oh, what does that matter to you? Who knows? I don't know. So what I did was I threw out a question on that antiquated platform Facebook and asked for some people to ask me questions. Now, perhaps this was because I didn't have a clue what I was going to talk about. And in some ways, how do you follow the relative success of the video cast with Addy. But someone asked me to try and explain Irish politics. What a question that is. Can you explain Irish politics? Well, I'm not even sure where to begin with this question. It's something, of course, everyone has been asking me within the framework of Primordial for as long as I can remember the very first interview um, there's always been a question about back then I remember people would always ask me about Guinness about whiskey about about leprechauns yeah of course and the film Leprechaun which nobody in Ireland seemed to know ironically and then the IRA and history this is what people knew of Ireland and trying to field that question 
I'll tell you this, that I think I will get let I would get how can we say I would get into less trouble now in the year 2020 with addressing Irish history in a wrong or improper manner than I would, for example, by stating a scientific fact on Twitter, such as the nature of the way the world has changed, hundreds of years of struggle and, let's call it, oppression and uprising and revolution. And I think a, a podcast on Irish politics to some people now seems quite quaint when 25 years ago they were blowing people up over it. Um, so I do tread carefully over the subject. And maybe some of you might find this interesting. I mean, Freud called the Irish impossible to psychoanalyze, which is a very interesting and odd thing to unpack. Um, and I might try and do this. So I'm going to try and skirt around some of the questions and sort of get into why the whys and wherefores to some degree. This was partly inspired by the fact that I was able to finally get out of Dublin and visit the North, visit the North. And there are elements, of course, of the North that are Catholic and some are Protestant. And someone asked me on Twitter, um, not Twitter, no. Um, with great joy, I deleted all the people I follow on Twitter uh, with the band and all of a sudden felt a great lifting of outrage from my shoulders. And I would ask you or implore or maybe even advise you to do the same. It's somehow liberating. I deleted my own Twitter years ago because all I did was find it was, well, it was making me outraged. I mean, if any of you have seen the Adam Curtis documentary, The Century of the Self, there's an episode called Happiness Machines um, about how human beings have been programmed to pursue happiness, to pursue the pursue luxury that was beyond their means or wasn't really needed to survive. And now I think we are outrage machines and the number one culprit in the culture of outrage is Twitter. It just plays you, plays you perfectly in tune. So with, you know, somewhat, I mean, it sounds like a minuscule drop in the ocean considering, but if we're considering our mental health, then I would advise deleting things like Twitter because right now in this era of polarization, this is one of the main benefactors of our outrage and it can do you only positive um, or can do your mental health only good things to stop being forced into this pen of outrage. Anyway, what am I talking about? What am I talking about? Somebody asked me, someone asked me about Irish politics. They said, why can you explain? Someone asked me to explain. Why does that bit at the top belong to England? Why does that bit at the top belong to England? Now, there's a question um, which made me break out in a cold sweat at the prospect of having to try and answer. I'm obviously not a historian. I'm just a singer in a heavy metal band. Um, and this is a question that goes back, well, you'll see, 800 years. Um, so bear with me. I'm going to try and 
rummage through the grey matter in the back of my my brain, my addled, tired, frustrated brain and see if I can explain this in some to some degree. So the word is called plantation or the plantations. But we need to go back a couple of hundred years before that to put some historical context on it. So I'll try and do this. Um, like I said, I came out in a cold sweat even thinking about doing this. But I understand that for people outside of Ireland and even within Ireland, this is perhaps something unusual. And because of what primordial and most Irish bands have been recognized with is which is a cultural purchase in the modern world and an element of our history. Um, there are probably a lot more people than I imagine who might wish to know this or at least know my potted pigeon version of it. Um, so bear with me as I try and remember um, what I learned in school 30 years ago. And let's try and go through it. So it really, you have to consider that Ireland is a rural um, I'm not going to even going to use the agrarian yet because we didn't really even have proper farming, but it was a nomadic wanderer um, people that inhabited Ireland in the 9th, 10th and 11th centuries. There isn't really any recorded history from back then. And I think we can really consider Ireland just a wild wooded place. Um, now, maybe I'm doing some elements of it a disservice, but I have a feeling not. So, where do we begin with all this? What we have to, where we have to start is really in the 12th century, um, where the first, the Norman conquest of Ireland. So this is Norman, uh, the Normans, the Norman civilization or empire stretched from England to the Mediterranean. They were the most organized, the most powerful uh, empire of the time, if we use that word. And Dermot McMurrah, who was High King of Ireland in the middle of the 12th century, widely considered as the father of all traitors, I suppose, in Irish history. Um, he, how can we explain? So you might, of course, know the name William the Conqueror. Well, William the Conqueror was a Norman king. And so if we consider that his son, um, Henry II uh, was head of the Norman Empire, I suppose, at the time. And Dermot McMurrah was High King of Ireland, and he sought um, refuge, advice, parley with William II. And this is about 1160, 1150, something like this, because Ireland was, he was warring with all the internal chieftains, Gaelic chieftains at the time in Ireland. And basically was trying to find the most his the most powerful ally to take back to Ireland and conquer it for himself and become the undisputed I suppose um, ruler of Ireland <clears throat> but he chose a very formidable ally so this is about 1150 1160 so for people whose country's history only goes back a co couple of hundred years yeah well this is some frightening level of context for what you might have seen in the 1980s on television you know this is these things all these things are interconnected you know 
So, where are we? The Norman Conquest of Ireland. So, William, Dermot McMurray went to France to try and basically do a little game of swapsies with Henry II, saying, if you give me an army to reconquer Ireland, I'll give you land. And the man that he aligned him with, you might know the name, uh, Strongbow. Yeah, you know it. It's a tangy, horrible, kind of acidic cider. I remember once drinking quite a lot of, too much Strongbow for my, I think, my 18th birthday and vomiting up the bile of my stomach in Dara from Invictus's uh, kitchen sink. The kitchen sink. Now, there's a good analogy for my mental state while trying to remember all this stuff. So I'm not going to drop lots of names and dates everywhere as I know how tedious that can get. But let's consider Ireland as a wild, rural, wooded backwater of Europe in the 11th and 12th century. And around about somewhere in the middle of the 12th century, the Normans landed. They landed on the east coast of Ireland. And the stories are of this strongbow-led army with Dermot Morrow and its wake landing on the shores of just outside the town of Waterford and the Irish running naked into battle. Um, so the story goes, naked, lacking armour, throwing stones, fighting with sticks and stones against these Norman knights, um, one of whom was called Alice the Vicious. If there's any punk bands out there, you can have that name. Copyright Nemthianga, Alice the Vicious. Alice the Vicious was said to have hacked her way through 70 men in retribution for killing her lover. Now there's, a, there's a song in there somewhere. I might try and mine that for... Anyway, what am I talking about? Yes, so this is 1170, and this is the beginning of the Norman conquest of Ireland and where Irish nationalists consider the beginning of, or the first stone's throw of oppression of Ireland or conquest of Ireland. So Strongbow then marries the daughter of Dermot McMurrah, the once exiled high king of Ireland. Her name is Aoife, which means dream or in a dream, as I remember. Is that true? It's an old Irish name, really beautiful name. So this is, he then marries into the high society of Ireland, let's call it like this, you know. And um, nobody really wants to talk about this. I really want to explain it too well. But we did inherit an awful lot of good things from the Normans, the very first Normans. We consider the Anglo-Hibernians. Um, Hibernia is what the Romans call Ireland. Um, so the Anglo-Hibernians that came in the 12th century, they gave us uh, our farming methods. Previous to that, Ireland was, well, previous to most of the forest being cut down by the Elizabethans, but that's another story. Um, the... the they gave us our farming methods, our tilling methods, um, our parliament we inherited from the Normans, the division of the count country into 32 counties. Um, they didn't bring all bad things. You know, you could say that the Norman influence modernized the country, but to them, of course, we were barbarians. I say we, like the royal we, as if somehow I have some magical connection to these people from 800 years ago, but that's the way history works. We aren't a blank slate. We aren't, we don't come from nowhere, but we are not a blank slate, so to speak. But 
Anyway, so where are we? 12th century. The Normans, they consider the Irish. Let's say this, there, is a, there is a priest with the Norman conquest. They come from Wales. And there's a priest called Gerald of Wales, whatever his name would have been in Latin. And his book is called the Hibernicus something or other. I can't quite remember. And Gerald of Wales is rather um, unfriendly to the Irish. He, he says they, he considers the Irish a creature of instinct, not of intellect, a crude buffoon of a man. And he, even within his writings on the conquest of Ireland in the 12th century, he paints these little pictures, these little doodles, we could call them. And one is that of a woman having sex with a goat, inferring bestiality. Um, to me, of course, that sounds fucking cool because that's hail Satan, hail the goat. You know, you got it. We were hailing the goat way back in the 13th century. So take that, Norway, or whoever it is. What am I talking about? Right, Gerald of Wales paints pictures of Irish women having sex with goats. And like, don't even, don't forget that the Romans never even bothered conquering Ireland. Like their influences all across the, um, the British Isles, or well, at least across England, but they never even bothered coming here. It's like they looked across and went, ah, it's nothing there, leave them. So where are we, 12th century? So this process goes on for about another 75, 80 years. And the, then the Irish chieftains collectively are getting a little bit pissed off with the what we can see is that the Normans build their castles and build their forts. And the Irish are really just dwelling on the outside. They are in, there's almost like an indoor or inside corridor of Norman existence and an outdoor life. And this is the Irish wandering nomadic life. And the Irish chieftains somehow managed to group together and in 1317 send a letter to complain to the Pope. They claim that the Irish are falling into the abyss of slavery, savaged by the teeth of the English. Direct quote. Falling into the abyss of slavery. Okay. There's a divisive word. Then, we fast forward another 30 or 40 years. The Pope does nothing. Um... Henry II, head of the Norman, was it Henry II? Too many names. Regardless of this, maybe it was Philip II, I'm not sure. No, Philip II was the leader of the Spanish, the Spanish. Okay, okay, brain, focus. Okay, let's go. So <clears throat> this all becomes inconsequential as in 1348, um, the Black Death arrives in Hoth, which is actually just next to where I grew up. But that's the first landing place, known landing place of the Black Death. And the Black Death, I should really just do a podcast on that as well. Not only because it sounds fucking cool, but the implications that it has for an element of where we are now in this sort of um, the golden age of Black Death. The golden age of viruses lasted 150, 200 years and it changed European society massively, immensely. Because in the power vacuum in the and also in the cultural vacuum after the Black Death, we have the Enlightenment and we have many other um, scientific and intellectual processes rise from the contagion. Anyway, so the Black Death lands in Ireland, lands in Hoth, which is on the east coast 
just in uh, maybe on the outskirts of Dublin. And we consider on Dublin means the Black Pool, uh, a name given to it by the Vikings. Um, but we won't go down that road quite just yet. So, because that would probably drive me completely off course, off into the waters or somewhere else, you know. Um, so, m- an awful lot of the Norman chiefs and the Norman leaders uh, flee Ireland. They flee, they leave their castles to ruin. They fly from the country uh, in the face of the Black Death, you know. And they leave, to de- they leave the country to descend into an almost lawless state as there's a power vacuum. And this is one of the things that I've been talking about in the, in the podcast previous to this. And that is that it's all very easy for us to want to tear down the structures, tear down civilization. But what comes in its place will always be, and we must learn this from history, in my opinion, a struggle, a power vacuum, a struggle for power. Um, there isn't a diplomatic community of elders who step up to the plate and everybody lives in communal harmony. If somebody can point out where that actually happened, um, I'd like to know. But the Black Death, the post-Black Death Europe, we witness a cultural renaissance. And Ireland is no different because the first manuscripts start to appear. We start to have a written history, not just an oral history. But the squabbling warlords, this continues for 100, 150 years. I'm not going to go into the names of the Dermans and the, the different clans and the Desmonds and the Fitzgeralds and all this kind of stuff because I know how tedious it can get to just hear names of, although it might be quite enlightening if that happens to be your surname and you're from Iowa or Ohio or California and you hear, oh, the Fitzgeralds. And then you realize that that's a royal Irish name from the 15th century. Are you listening, Fitzgeralds? Anyway, out of all this, the Normans cede control of England. And in 1509, there's a name, a very heavy name in history, who will come to move the path, or how we say, carve a way through the forest of potential to reach somewhere completely un- unseen at the time. And this is Henry VIII. Henry VIII um, is the Tudor king. The Normans who had been in Ireland have more or less assimilated and become sort of as Irish in the uh, in the previous 100 years as after the um, mass exodus, after the Black Death. And Henry has the will and the desire and the want to try and conquer Ireland. And he declares himself King of Ireland. Um, and he sees Ireland as a, a furious backwater, uh, a place where rebellion can stir against the crown. And he wishes to crush it. So there's a very famous rebellion in 1534. Henry crushes it. And as I said, declares himself King of Ireland. Now, what do we know about Henry VIII? You probably know his name from Song, the Seven Wives of Henry VIII, all this kind of stuff. But this is where the word that I mentioned at the start of all of this began. 
um, and that is the plantations. So the plantations really were, what will we call it? It is how it sounds. It is literally the 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 deforestation of Irish culture and the replanting of that space with the anglicized culture of the time. Um, and that's why it's really called the plantations. But it's a traditional colonial method um, as opposed to or as well as slash and burn. So what happens is, is that it began properly in the 16th century. Lands were confiscated from Gaelic clans and chiefs. And under Henry VIII, uh, listen, you should do a little bit of digging into his name, especially if you like Game of Thrones, because it would appear that the entire of Game of Thrones is just based on 16th century Tudor England and the War of the Roses, the Hundred Years War, all this kind of stuff. Uh, the Plantagenets and Tudors and so many names. And look, there are podcasts that are entirely devoted to all of those with actual historians who know what they're talking about. Like I said, I'm just a singer in a heavy metal band wading into territory I maybe shouldn't. But like I said, if someone asks me on Instagram, can you explain why the bit at the top belongs to England? Well, who am I to try and shirk the responsibility of explaining that? So Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. Game of Thrones is based on 16th century Tudor England, as I would understand it, which is a fascinating period. Um, OK, where was I? So the process was begun under Henry VIII. And what this means is that um, the movement, the, the anglicization of Irish culture. And for those who think that history is just a, a boys club, they should really do a little bit more digging into history because Henry VIII was married to Catherine of Aragon, um, who never gave him an heir, as they said back then. And you may know the name Anne Boleyn. Well, what did Henry do? She was a Protestant. Henry was head of the Catholic Church, or well, not the Catholic Church, and not the head either, but he was a Catholic. Okay, I'm going to get try and tread carefully through this stuff. So Henry VIII ditches Catherine of Aragon, um, you know, probably a, probably a text or whatever. Uh, and he moves on to Anne Boleyn, which was forbidden for a head of state like him to marry um, a Protestant. So what does he do? He just creates the Church of England in 1533, goes against the Pope's wishes, um, which is a massive blow across the bow of Catholicism and sets in motion the battleground for the Reformation. And don't forget, at this time, you know, the Spanish Inquisition is putting the pedal to the metal, never ever false metal. Uh, they're operating at this time as well under, I'm pretty sure, Philip II, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so Europe was becoming a religious battleground and Henry VIII just impetuously, literally, kick-started um, a turbulent period of revolution and rebellion. And of course, these plantations from 1550 to 1575 um, made in an attempt to anglicize Ireland. They called it surrender and regrant. Um, but the small colonies of model English farming attitudes were something that were moved across to Ireland in the hope that the Irish would emulate them. And I'm being very polite when I'm 
explaining these things because um, I don't want this to be a diatribe of only how repressed and oppressed and cruelly and brutally the Irish were treated. If anybody wants to read Thomas Sowell um, about the Irish, then maybe, you know, have a look at that. But that's not what this is about. I'm trying to actually functionally explain, um, almost mathematically explain why these things, well, maybe not mathematically, but functionally explain why the North is what it is. And so the backdrop to all of this is that Ireland remains Catholic because Henry hasn't really got an army or the forces at the time or to properly subjugate the Irish. And what happens is that England moves closer to the elements of Northern European faith, Protestantism, and therefore the Reformation, which is... And Ireland remains Catholic. And they view each other suspiciously. They really do. All the time in the 16th century, England is viewing Ireland as a, as a melting pot for rebellion. So Henry dies, and who takes over from him so let's skip through his son Edward but what we do is we land on Mary and Elizabeth so the English crown was ruled by two women as we move into the late um, 15th century the plantations are still beginning in earnest we have the 1572 counter-reformation happening in Europe and this is an age of almost total war, not only in Ireland, but across Europe. They're, the Elizabethans are hacking and slashing their way through Ireland. There are Catholic death squads roaming France, murdering thousands. And again, I often find that people who don't know that much about history are unwilling to consider that these are lessons that we should learn from the past and that not every statue can be raised in glorification of the past sometimes it's a warning anyway where are we so the plantations are just still happening and what basically happens is that we can say in a very simple way is that the Elizabethans the 16th century plantations and into the 17th century only really have full effect in the north of the country. There are other plantations in Connacht and in around the east coast, but by and large, an easy way to explain it is that the plantations only really gets around to doing the six counties or the the head, the Teddy's head, and where over the course of the next couple of hundred years, you see that the within the six counties, the ratio Catholic to Protestant is roughly. 55, 45%, 60%, 40%, 50-50. And this is the reason why it goes back to the 16, 1550 to, let's say, 1700, these plantation periods. Um, whereas the South, it never really happens and takes hold in the same fashion. So that's why if you go to, like, 1980, Republic of Ireland, south of Ireland, it's running at 96, 97% Catholic. And this is one of the things people have to really understand about Irish history is that we were almost all, well, not almost, virtually all the same religion, 
the same language, the same ethnicity. So there was no social uh, cleavages. I know that my word makes some people laugh. But there was no minorities to um, instigate any form of otherness into the south, into the south of Ireland. Like, we, you know, the Catholic Church didn't even have a nascent fascist party to do its bidding because it didn't need that. Anyway, what am I talking about? So the process continues under Mary I. And although we could say Elizabeth II was more of a peacemaker, we could call her an Irish influencer if she was on Instagram, the process continues. And what you see is, as I said, the six counties at the top, the north, were the main seeds of this plantation, this movement of uh, Scots Protestants, Welsh Protestants, onto the land in the north in an attempt to anglicise Ireland. There was, of course, a few other places, like I said, the Midlands, a terrible place, don't ever go there. Mainly grey, sodden towns where young lads meet every weekend at an equidistant... At a what? At an equidistant nightclub. You know, always called something like incongruously sunny like the Miami or the Havana or Casablanca's or something like this and then just knock the shit out of each other in the car park afterwards and then do the same thing every week um, I can be booked anytime in the Midlands for spoken word uh, no problem <clears throat> what are we talking about okay so this is a course this is how the course of the demographics changed in Ireland the economic and religious nature of these areas were changed Irrevocably, irrevocably and we could call it like a religious class system um, no one really likes that word the word class anymore but I think it's a far better indicator of social mobility than any other even right now if you ask me but I know it's it, especially in the US it's not really a thing that people discuss anymore but I think it's very relevant so what I'm trying to explain there, um, and thank you for the person, probably a Russian bot on Instagram who got me into trouble for trying to explain that. Um, what I'm trying to explain there, how can we say? 12th century, you've got the Norman incursion into Ireland, and this changes Ireland in certain ways. As I said, farming, um, the movement from a roaming hunter-gatherer society into something more settled, uh, they bring parliament. They bring, of course, cruelty and barbarism. But, I mean, when is that not on the table? And then we go to the Black Death. We go to how that altered and changed Europe. And Ireland was no different in the 14th century. And then we move through a period of, let's say, cultural turbulence into the 16th century in the Tudors. Henry VIII, um, Edward, Mary, Elizabeth the rulers at the time, um, and the plantations start in earnest somewhere around 1530, 1540, as I understand it. And this continues, um, the process continues after that. And the word plantation, literally, you can take it to mean the clearing of the forest and the replanting. We use whatever metaphor you like for it. But that's realistically what it is. And so the reason why that part at the top the bit at the top, the head, the teddy's head. The reason why that is, for the most part, half and half, demographically, statistically, Catholic and Protestant, is because of this 
from the last this this movement the plantations that happened in the 15th century 16th century so this is the origins for an awful lot of the troubles an awful lot of the problems um not the only thing not the only coefficient i'm gonna get um my good friend joe from gamma bomb who lives up the north onto the podcast to try and explain how it was to grow up in that area but also with the as the having inherited this historical um situation and precedent should be an interesting conversation he has a lot to say about this and also because my background coming from the south is quite different to most um well let's say catholics i come from a secular family um which has a, a protestant um let's say a protestant background but yet i was never sent to church never christened never baptized never had religious instruction education which is very very strange for an irish person and in the south at the time in the 80s there was only a handful of schools that would have taken me but my parents all fair dues to them were not interested in sending me for religious education for religious instruction um so my view on this story i've left out an awful lot of the murder and the bloody cruel elements of it i'm not even going to mention the word well i am going to mention his name oliver cromwell um as his hands and his deeds are all over the next century his cruelty and barbarism and the death toll that lay in his wake is um all you have to do is say the name even still in ireland and you elicit a rather extreme response to those two words oliver cromwell so maybe i'll talk about him in the next podcast i think he deserves maybe a little bit more space in the bloody pages of history but i strictly wanted to really consider the word plantation and what that meant and the reason why that bit at the top is the bit at the top so with great wariness i tried to tread around that with diplomacy maybe a diplomacy i should apply to other things who knows but of course the devil is in the detail and the devil is local right when you grow up with this stuff and i tried to dredge my adult memory my adult brain with some of these information and make it a little bit um easier to understand now maybe i've done nothing but confuse everyone and maybe it's my own folly for trying to do that i mean i'm not i'm not dan carlin if some of you know his mammoth hardcore histories podcasts they are absolutely mind blowing the best thing you can possibly listen to on a long haul flight or something like this well if we ever take them again um yeah but i'm not dan carlin um and i don't pretend to be and i mean maybe this isn't my lane um because you know like i said i'm not a historian i'm not following a script i'm trying to just dredge my memory for this stuff so once you commit to this somebody will always go ah oh, you said it was 1309 but it was actually 1409 look take it for what it is and um but of course it's not a history podcast um but if you really want to delve into this 16th century english history you really should as it's a really fascinating time and it's not something we were ever taught in school this is also something i think that is very relevant and interesting to discuss is what angle of history you're taught in school like many of my english friends 
were never really taught about the famine. They were never really taught about Irish history from the 19th century. Um, and we, in turn, never really learned. I don't remember ever learning about the Plantagenets or learning about 16th century England or names like Calvinism or these meant little to us growing up. As well as recommending Dan Carlin, I'd also recommend um, a series called Wolf Hall. They're sort of historical novels by an author called Hilary Mantel. And it's a really excellent TV series. This is um, one of the best TV series I think I've seen in the last couple of years. And this sort of documents the 1500 to 1535 period of uh, Thomas Cromwell and his relationship to Henry VIII and the death of Thomas More, um, all this kind of stuff. So along with Dan Carlin, I mean, uh, maybe have a look into that kind of stuff. But Wolf Hall is definitely, definitely excellent stuff. So that will be all with that. And maybe what I'll do is then I'll pick up the course of Irish history from, let's say, 1620, 1630, and we can start to move from there to the famine. Because people, of course, constantly ask me about the coffin ships, primordial song, about there's so many interesting things that happen in the 19th century. Let's say the origins of the Irish state, which came into birth in the early 20th century, the political movements of the 19th century. So if there's a will and a want among people to hear, let's say, from 16, 20, 30, and I will then maybe discuss Oliver Cromwell as well. In the meantime, you can go and watch which Hammer Horror movie is it that Oliver Cromwell is in? I'm not sure. Go and search it out. Not a pleasant man. I mean, maybe I should broaden this out and have a look at the Reformation and Martin Luther, seeing as I've written songs about him as well. I don't know. My head begins to spin with the many different avenues and routes we could take this off into. But seeing as people keep asking me this, maybe we should just stick to Ireland for the time being. So there you go. That's what that's the reason why it's the word. It's plantations. Um, like I said, I would have approached this with an awful lot of trepidation 15, 20, 25 years ago. But somehow it feels that Ireland is mostly over that form of trepidation that we've come to some form of terms and recognition of our past and that I don't think anybody wants to go back to the era when people were being blown up in the street and killing each other and there was punishment shootings and beatings. I don't think that's a place where Ireland wants to go back to. But I think that people, as I've often said in this podcast, people willing revolution into, into being right now really need to think about forces that they may unleash because when you come from a country that has lived with that for a long time um, and its history you understand that the veneer between those two things the people who live side by side in relative harmony can very easily be turned against each other we see this already right now beginning to move once again in the Balkans um, we're maybe heading for a very turbulent decade if you ask me well, maybe you didn't ask me. Maybe I should just shut up and get on with making some heavy metal. Yeah, you're probably right too. But I do think, and I, the people willing the word, these words into being almost like saying revolution three times like Beetlejuice or something like this, really need to consider the destructive and bloody nature of those things 
and I didn't even enter into the I didn't even wade through the rivers of massacres and the the, the, the swathes of blood and barbarity and cruelty that underpin all of these things and we may just have different weapons now but this element I think is still within us and we need to be very wary of unleashing those forces like I said who cares what I think let's get back to talking about heavy metal Alan will we can we have some more stories about you falling off things and being an idiot I promise I will lighten up the next podcast with some idiocy I have a really really silly story in my back pocket for you all um, until then that was the end of let's just call it episode 13 and not bother with this season stuff so that was the end of episode 13 and like I said if I've got names dates this and that wrong you know tell it to the brain okay agitators anonymous episode 13 hope that explained a few things for you um this is alan averill metal never bends see you next time imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.